Welcome to Elevating Voices and Leadership podcast brought to you in partnership with Pepperdine University's Graduate School of Education um, and Psychology. I am Dr. Gabriela Miramontes and I will be your host today. With me today is Dr. Asia Ghazi, uh, Ms. Charletta Green, Ms. and Ms. Wellen Schneider, and uh, Ida Jafari. Um, today's conversation, we're going to take it back to basics. Uh, we're going to be talking about dissertation coaching and uh, while this podcast is a leadership podcast, a lot of our guests and our panel um, are in a doctoral program. And so we're, we'll be discussing just some tips and tricks and ways of completing a dissertation and how that can potentially um, help when you get stuck. So that's really the goal for today. It's going to be really informal. It's just going to be a conversation. So with that, um, let's go ahead and get started. All right. Well, I'm I'm going to start off by talking about the fact that um, I think it's okay if we're going through some type of burnout and that we need to kind of take a break. <laughs> All the writing we're doing, because I feel like that right now. No, I, yes, absolutely. Uh, so this is one of the things I always tell um, students, and you've sh potentially heard me say this in EAP. There's nothing wrong with walking away. Sometimes when you get stuck, like you know, being able to take a breath, go out and do something completely different. But part of it is our guilt, right? Oh, we could be, we could be using this time in a more productive way, or we should be reading or, you know, oh, just one more journal article. And then you kind of get in your own way because you're reading and it's not computing. You're almost like, I'm reading the words. I see the words on the page. I can look at the words, but they make no sense in the context of your dissertation, right? Um, so totally agree. You do need to take breaks. You do need to walk away from your dissertation from time to time um, or any paper, any thesis, or um, I think it, it's really important to give your brain a break and do something fun. Give yourself permission in that regard. So starting with that, absolutely. But also, there's ways of um, mitigating some of that burnout, right? So um, if you get stuck and walking away doesn't help, focus on those areas on your paper that don't take that much brain energy, that you don't have to synthesize. So one of the things that I always tell students is that the doctoral level, you shouldn't be using direct quotes anymore. You've all heard me say this at one point or another. Yes. Right. At this point, direct quotes, you should be synthesizing your content. You should be summarizing, paraphrasing, and ultimately synthesizing it. What does it mean? Uh, what can you infer from it? But the reality is that's really hard. It's not just a matter of, you know, it's easier to do an annotated bibliography. It's easier to write a book report. And that's not what this is. So because it does take so much mental um mental strength not mental strength but mental stamina to do this sometimes your brain is just like good luck um and when that happens focus on other things so there's a section on your in your dissertation at least for the dissertations uh, the dissertations that students that work with me there's a definition of terms yeah start there right do all the terms and remember it doesn't matter how many you have you can write a full page of dissertation terms 
when it comes time to really submitting, you can go back and delete them. But at the very least, it'll get you thinking. Talk about your assumptions or your limitations, right? Things that don't necessarily require a lot of research that you can complete fairly quickly. Part of, part of, the hardest part of writing your first chapter in a dissertation, whether it's chapter one or chapter two, is starting. It's that first paragraph, right? Because um, we all think of our dissertations as this opus. And, and it's not. It really isn't. Your opus isn't your dissertation. Your opus is what you do with it. I agree. Um, and I have to say, so one of the things that I know a lot of students do, and I still see them doing it, like you just said, is the quotes. They'll still add a lot of quotes, even in their dissertation. I do go back and I tell them, no, you have to go back and you have to paraphrase them in your own words. And what happens is a lot of times when people are quoting, they forget to add the page number. So then that makes it even more difficult because when you ask them later on to go back and find the page number, they're not going to remember it. So then, you know, and as someone who edits dissertations and, and works with students in APA in various universities, um, one of the things that I, you know, come across is the fact that students will say, yeah, I don't remember this resource. I don't remember where I got this from when they're in that process. So one of the tips that I can give that worked for me when I was doing my dissertation the first time around was um, I got, um, I opened up a, a document on Word and called it References. And then what I did was any reference that I found, even if it was just a link to a website or whatever, I stuck it all on that one page and I saved I saved the document. So I would keep adding to it, adding to it. And then eventually it'd be like 30 pages of references and resources. And so I kept that on one area. And then I, as I was writing, I knew, okay, I have this reference and I know where to cite it. I know where I'm going to find this information. Um, and it, it actually helped me too, because when it came time to make sure that I had all my references and that all my references and, and the citations matched, I wasn't missing anything. It was great because I already had everything there. And if there was something missing and I caught it, I had the reference and I was able to input it in right away. A lot of students don't remember that. And so when I'm going through the reviews with students and I'm like, hey, I found a bunch of missing references. Then they have to go through and do it. Like actually, in fact, the other day when I was doing a couple of them, um, I found, you know, a lot of missing references. So I got on Zoom with them and I said, hey, can we look through these references? Do you need them? You know, do you, if you have them and you're, and there's a lot, like, I think like a few of the references that one of the students had, like was very repetitive throughout the dissertation. I'm like, if it's, if it's a one-time mention, we can delete that. That's fine. But if it's like a mention throughout, you have to find a reference and add it in there. You can't, you know, it's just going to be too much to omit it. Why? You know, it's, an, it's something that makes sense. So then I tell them to go back and I have them look for it. And I'm like, if you don't remember, think about the topic where that reference came from and put it on Google and you'll find it. And they do. And if they can't, I'll find it for them in five seconds. And I'm like, here's your reference, you know, add it in. So it's important for them to do that. And, and as far as paraphrasing, I think even the APA manual says, yeah, quoting is cool, but we'd rather you paraphrase. They actually prefer that more than the quoting. So, right. Well, yeah. and and the reason the reason for that is because one, the language can get really clumsy if you try to fit a direct quote into something yeah. you're saying, right? So you have to think about how you're going to position it so grammatically it makes sense. So that's one. But two, mm -hmm. if it's your true. dissertation if your dissertation exceeds a certain percentage of ownership, it's no longer your writing, right? So if every other paragraph has quotes, where are you in the narrative? Um, yeah. And yeah. that's really important. 
in addition to what what um, Dr. Asia added, as far as that, this is one of the reasons why I actually think that um, annotated bibliographies are really good. Um, and it's because if you start off creating an annotated bibliography um, and you're reading the content of a journal article, you know, it, it makes sense to paraphrase what you read, put it in a paragraph associated with that journal, because then that already gets you thinking, yeah. right? You're giving an overview. Um, and I wish Dr. Brame was here because she actually would also speak to the idea of when you're reading a journal article, you don't have to read the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. That's the other piece that everyone kind of gets stuck mm -hmm. in. You start you start reading the whole thing, and then before you know it, you're it's all jumbled. So, so you start with the abstract. Does the abstract make sense? Should you continue reading? Is this relevant? Great. Then read the conclusion. Does the conclusion make sense? Does it pique your interest? Are you interested in hearing how they got to where they got? Does that make sense as far as your study? And then you start reading the different sections, right? Because sometimes you don't need the, like you see some of these journal articles, you don't need the methodology. You don't need to go look at what the methodology is. You want to know what the premise of the article is. You want to see the conclusions, yeah. but that's that's the other time saver. Um, one of the other things I've, I've told, at least my students is, um, start with five articles. Don't go out pulling 75 articles because then in your head it's so daunting you have this stack of material you have to read um books are even harder because if you have even just five books right and they're sitting on your desk or they're sitting on your shelf and you know you have to read them it becomes overwhelming yes it does it really does and so so you want to you start with five pull the key ideas and sometimes it might help that you have a, a, a writing buddy that you can actually soundboard with. And here's why. Tell me what, tell me what you just read. Tell me the latest article. What'd you think of it? What are your thoughts on it? The, once you start talking, you start using different parts of your brain that might activate different thoughts, if you will. Mm -hmm. I actually have one other suggestion too that I think might help. Sometimes people are like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know what other articles to look at or what other research to look at. And I'm, I tell them, I'm like, well, the article that you're reading, since it's specific to your research, look at who they're citing. Maybe you'll find references in those, in, in, in their articles that you can also pull out and cite. So that means if you have those, if you see the references, go look for them, you know, at your library, like, you know, library.pepperdine.edu or whatever local, um, whatever, um, you know, university you're at, look in their university library and look for that reference that you saw. And then you'll notice that, you know, you'll start building up your reference list very quickly just by adding on to that. It doesn't mean every reference in that article is going to be what you need, but like Dr. Gabby just said, like, even if it's just like two sentences that actually fit something from that study and that's something that works, you can take it out and put that in as a reference and a citation. So in regard to, in regards to that, I do have a question because, for example, when we're talking, I think we have we have different stages when we are writing the introduction, then when we are writing the literature review, we needed to build that very quickly. And one thing that I struggle is, okay, um, and I, I am interrupting all the time 
my writing for chapter one, which is only the introduction, is trying to get more and more and more resources. So when is it the moment to really do that? Is it the moment during the introduction? Should I be, you know, looking and putting a lot of references or no? Should I do that only in chapter two? So how, how can I, uh, what are the tips to calibrate what to do in what stage, you know? Does mm -hmm. it make sense, this yeah. question? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the bulk of your research goes in your chapter two. The bulk of your lit like the bulk of your your content is going to be in chapter two. That's really where you need to bolster it. That's where you should be using multiple authors to substantiate key ideas. Chapter one is just that. It's an introduction. So you want to make sure that what you include in your introduction is going to hook into your chapter two. You want to have some substantiation because if I see declarative statements, you know, I'm going to come back and be like, according to who? said who you know like who said that but you're not going deep you're going broad so it's more along the lines of you know for your chapter one your introduction outline it first like think about the key ideas what are the key ideas you're going to be addressing um what are some of the content areas that are really specific to the topic you're 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 discussing and remember for if, if you're doing an EIP dissertation, if you're working with EIP, you know that you're doing best practices, right? So you already have some of that built in. You know you're looking at best practices, you know you're looking at strategies, you know you're looking at, at, at challenges. So there's some, I always call them pillars because we have four pillars within the program. We have the best practice or successful strategies. We have the challenges associated with your topic. We have measures of success because every single industry we ever evaluate is always going to be, they have to have a way of, of indicating that they've been successful or not, right? So there's always measures of success. And lastly, there's always literature around how to do things better or what recommendations are out there for your industry's success. Um, and so those are the, the really the like top level pillars when we talk about EIP dissertation. And I know this isn't just about EIP dissertations. Ida's in the room, she's not an EIP student. I totally get that. But when we're talking about your chapter one, you wanna look at those key ideas. You wanna look at how are you framing it? What is your process? What is your content? And that's really what shapes your, your, your introduction. So to answer your question about research you can sprinkle your research in but it's not diving deep until you get to your chapter two and I know that 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 in some cases because their faculty approach this differently there's some faculty that have you start with chapter two and all you're focused I've heard of some faculty that you don't even write in your first semester all you do is research you put all the content in your research in your first semester and then in your second semester you start writing I don't, I don't approach dissertation writing from that angle because I know that it can be really frustrating. You want to do. So we integrate the do with the research as you go. No, that's that's nice. And uh, it was the way I did my dissertation for my master. The dissertation and master degrees in, in Brazil are very similar uh, when we are talking about um, 
trictosensors, we have this differentiation. Um, and that makes sense. Another question that I have is when we are defining terms, and this is a discussion that we have yesterday <laughs> with Shalana, and I'm not sure if I gave her good advice or not. <laughs> I just share with her how I was doing that. I am selecting my terms very carefully and I'm substantiating them with uh, at least one reference and then explain a little bit about that. Is it enough one reference? Should we go deep in that? Uh, or what are your thoughts on uh, thoughts on that? It, it was was my 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 suggestion right or wrong? <laughs> <clears throat> so when you're doing the literature, actually I've seen it both ways. I've seen where you define the term and then you use the literature to substantiate it. Um, or people use Webster's dictionary if it's just a key term and they're using a basic definition. Um, or, but I've also seen students do the definition and then an explanation. Either one is right. You only need one source because we're not expecting you to write a full paragraph. What's going to happen is as you're introducing the concept, right, you're going you're gonna to add context clues. So you have the definition, but then it's about how you use it and how you place it within your research that'll also serve to substantiate the term you're using. So when you were talking about context, could you provide example of that? Um, so say, for example, I define belonging as diversity, equity, inclusion, and the application of such and I provide a source right uh, the context clues are around at GSEP we have a belonging document within that belonging document we list all the various things we do in order to create opportunity for our students of color um, we have programs in place that actually help support our belonging work um, and, and and so on and so forth right so I give you the definition I cite it but then when I apply it, I give you more context. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to add something and I, I want to hear your thoughts. Um, yep. One thing that really helped me uh, was, you know, and I took it from our professor's recommendations throughout the program to get an editor throughout your, you know, dissertation process. That really helped me. I don't know if it's because this is my second language or it can help anyone because it doesn't mean that we are all, even in our native language, we are really good at literature. So it helped me because, you know, I didn't, I wasn't so worried about missing some points in regards to APA or, you know, citation, um, even paraphrasing. And it's, you know, it really takes a big load off my work and my mind um, I would like to hear your thoughts to Dr. Gabby and Dr. Asia, and I have a very good editor. I don't want to mention her name here. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's been really helpful to me. Absolutely. So, um, actually in, in EIP, we stipulate that if you're going to join our program, you have to be open to the possibility of needing an editor and getting an editor, or at the very least working with our writing center. 
And the Writing Center is a free resource to our students. Like a lot of students don't take advantage of that, but it is a free resource. You, you don't have to pay to use them. Um, I think that having an editor is one of the smartest things you can do when you're writing a dissertation because keep in mind after, you know, at the very end, this is a hundred and some page document with five distinct chapters. You are so close to this that you think you know it inside and out and you know the content inside and out for sure. But you've also seen it and read it so many times that your brain no longer fills in all the gaps, right? So you're not reading it word for word. You're not looking at every single period. You're not looking at every single reference. Your brain, your eyes might go over. And this is just biological. This has nothing to do with anything. It has nothing to do with intellect. It has nothing to do with um, capacity, nothing. Your brain, because you've read it so many times, your brain is like, oh, I got this. And you start skipping words. You start skipping punctuation and it's not intentional, but you miss things. And so I've, I can't tell you how many chapters I've read where things like to and 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 we, you know, are are missing. And it's because you it was in your head. Your fingers just didn't type it fast enough and your brain had already moved on. So. So having an editor is one of those things where I think it, it can do a lot of good. It's also an expensive thing. So I'm not I'm not. Um, blind to that, which is why at the very least I tell students, look, there's challenges, there's grammatical issues, depending on how many grammar issues or, or how much work your paper needs, we'll either recommend an editor, we'll say get an, you know, we'll recommend that you get an editor, um, or we'll refer you to the writing center. Those are the options. Um, and we have a really good writing center, but they're not editors by any stretch of the imagination. So, trying to make sure that and that's not a diss it's just the number of students we have working on dissertation versus the number of people we have in the writing center you know doesn't allow for for that deep dive and really editorial work but it's a start so i think that either to your question um we really encourage our students to use editors at least in 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 my program um because it, it really adds that professional touch at the very end. Now you can go through it. I always tell students, and this is this is where there might be some discrepancy. There's some people that say, oh, get a student after every chapter. Mm, I don't know that I agree with that um, because your chapters tend to change. I always say if you're gonna, if you want to split it, get a chapter for the first, get an editor for the first three chapters um, once you're pretty close to done. And then get an editor for the last two chapters because it's an iterative process. So if you get an editor for every single chapter, they keep on going back to make sure that contextually what you write in chapter one aligns with chapter two. And then when you're done with chapter three, that it aligns with chapter two and you're just redoing the work as opposed to the three chapters. And then they get to see the whole context together. Dr. Asia? Yeah, I wanted to say something too. Um, so... One of the things I've noticed sometimes, and this happened, I had a student who um, she was like, she was telling me, she's like, I need you to look at my paper. And I'm like, okay. She goes, I had two editors that looked at my paper. And I was like, 
don't, you should not have more than two editors. You shouldn't even have two editors looking at your paper because what she found was there was a conflict. So one editor was saying, well, you need to do your APA this way. And the other editor was saying, well, this has to be done this way. I'm like, APA 7 is one set, set type of rules. You don't have to sit there and be like, oh, you know what I mean? Like, okay, well, we can choose, pick and choose how we're going to do it. No, it's, it's one set of rules. So she had two editors and her paper was a mess. So when I was looking at it, I was like, and I was like, I'm going to edit it exactly the way that you're going to need it as required per the APA 7 manual, because I can tell you right now, both of these editors were wrong. They didn't do it correctly. And I explained to her why, and I even showed her. So she was like, oh, wow, I didn't know. And I think it's really important to note that if you have more than one person looking at your paper, um, so your chair is going to look at your paper, your committee is going to look at your paper, they're all going to have suggestions for you, they're all going to say something for you. I know some chairs that like to actually physically edit their student papers, and I'm like, that's don't do that. That's not your job to edit their papers. So it's like, it, so then it, when you have too many hands going in, it makes it a mess. And then at the end of the day, you start to get confused with what needs to be done. And so what I always tell students is have one editor that you're going to stick with throughout the entire dissertation. And that editor is going to be the one you're going to work with. And what I've noticed a lot of editors don't do that I strive to do for my students is I actually add dissertation coaching and guidance. And so I, you know, talk to students and I give them coaching. I give them guidance. They're coming to me and asking me, okay, well, we're using this methodology. What do you think? I have a student who asked me about discourse analysis. He's like, my chair is saying I need to use this. What do you think? And I said, your whatever your chair says, it's what's going to happen. So I'm saying, I, and I always tell students, even if I'm guiding you, if I'm giving you coaching, I will never tell you anything that's going to go against your chair. If your chair says it has to be this way, that's how it's going to be. Even your editor cannot go against. If your editor starts to argue with you and says, oh, well, you should do it this way. My chair said I have to do it this way. That's the way it's going to be. So your chair is going to trump anything anyone's going to tell you. And your editors, you have to have one editor. Don't get two. Don't get too many people looking at your paper. You can, And then I, some people I know they go, because every school has its writing center. Where I work at too, um, we have a writing center too with um, University of Arizona Global Campus, and the students are going there too. Then they come back and then they they get an editor too, and then they are showing me their paper, and I'm like, um, "Did you have two people look at your paper?" And they're like, "Yeah," and I'm like, "Okay, that's that's why you have certain issues. So we we need to talk about that. Either you choose the writing center, they can give you some feedback, because mind you, no writing center in any university is an editor. They're not going to edit your papers for that hour they're with you." They're just going to look at your paper, give you feedback, give you some comments and suggestions on what you can fix, and the rest of it is up to you. But an editor obviously will go through and edit your paper for you. You just want to be very careful. And you also want to choose editors that you know are going to do the job and they know their APA. Because one of the things I've noticed is, um, actually the other day I was when I was working with one of the students, you I caught a bunch of issues. She's like, you know what's interesting? I hired a an editor in Thailand and that editor went through my paper and she said she knew APA 7. And I said, apparently I found a lot of issues. So I'm not sure about that editor. You can show her to track changes. I'm not sure what she did, but I told her, I said, just be careful when you're looking for editors, make sure that they know what, you know, if they have a sample, get a sample from them because I think that's going to help if you can get a sample of their of how they actually 
you know, took maybe, let's say someone's paper and they edit it and then they show the sample of what they know or an example of, I know my APA 7 correctly, because a lot of times they're still in APA 6, uh, that's going to help you to find a good editor. It's, it's, and I, I've seen people like go through several different editors and they always come back and they're just like, yeah, I have these issues and, and we catch a bunch of them. So I always tell them to be very careful. Ask questions of any editor that you choose. Make sure the editor is giving you what you need to get, you know, get from them in terms of editing and APA work. If they don't know or are not comfortable with APA 7 or they're not able to follow the dissertation requirements for your school, because every school has its own requirements. Our school, we have our requirements. We have our, we have a deviation from our, from the APA 7 in some instances, not in everything, but in some. Um, and so you want to just be careful with that and, and show them if you get access to the dissertation requirements for that school, email it to the editor and say, these are the requirements. Can you fulfill this? You know, and have them do maybe like one chapter for you, just so you can see how their work is. That way it gives, it saves you from a headache later when you're having to go through the entire dissertation and you, you know, all these mistakes are being caught by somebody else. You know what I mean? So especially reviewers, because they will definitely catch every single little thing, including periods and quotation marks. <laughs> so just being real about what I see. Yeah, just to build on uh, Ida's um, suggestion and question, um, for me, I'm, I'm also, uh, English is not my first language, language as well, as you can see by my accent and all the mistakes I do while I was speaking. <laughs> but any, any, anyway, um, what I have is someone checking, like, you know, I use um, Grammarly, et cetera, but I also have someone reading over my pieces of papers and help me to revise, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the editor, as you were uh, saying, is much more about APA, et cetera. So um, I'm wondering if it is good to have through, uh, throughout the process, or when we have the work done, this the second part, the editor for EIP, because it seems to me that if we change all the times, how how you know how is it going to be? Is it when I did my dissertation back there in Brazil, I had the the the, the ABMT, which is our rule there, revising it right uh, only in the, at the end of everything. So, what are your thoughts on that? And I I don't know if I got it right. If Ida used the editor throughout the process or only at the end of the process, how does the you know this this works? I used it. Uh, I used her throughout the process since day one that I started. Okay. Yeah, and every step of the way, when I completed, let's say a stage or a, a chapter or a very important section of my for for her to check it, you know, check it out and then. Uh, I go from there because if your editor is especially from Pepperdine and you know knows as Dr. Asia said our rules and Pepperdine procedures they can help you with uh, you know if you are going a wrong route or they they can have very good suggestions even how to move forward you know that 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 also is a very good benefit of having an editor they sometimes uh, shed some light you know on your way if you're lost, because it happens a lot that 
as Dr. Gabby said, you get lost. I mean, you are so deep into reading things and paraphrasing and, you know, you want to fulfill all the purpose and everything. And then you are lost in the middle of your work. It happens a lot in, I don't know, every now and then it happens throughout the process that you feel lost. You are like, oh my God, I have to read it all over again. I have to revise it all over again. And then you, at some point, I'm sure we all had that experience. You don't understand what you, you are reading. It's your work, but you are like, you know, what is this? Where am I? How, how should I proceed? So having an editor help me sometimes with that too. Sometimes I just send a paragraph. I'm like, okay, is this theory correct if I go with it or not? So it's always like it, get, it goes back to you. You can think about what they tell you and see if it makes sense. Is it re relevant to your work or not? But at least you have another brain helping you, you know? Yeah, like you said, especially someone that's familiar with you know, what to do. And I know in the writing center too, they do have a list of people who have gone through the program. So, you know, they have that familiarity. Yeah. So for EIP, I'm really finicky about this. Um, we've had students that go to their editors and they get feedback that goes contrary to how we require our dissertations and, and the content. Um, and it creates a lot of tension because the students are like, well, so-and-so told me to do it this way and so-and-so. And it's like, yeah, but that's not our model and that's not our approach, which is why when you all started, you signed a document that says, hey, you're going to do all the things in, within our policy, right? Um, the basic question is it really depends on your editor and, and your relationship with your editor. If they're only editing for APA, if it's only technical, um, grammar, punctuation, that kind of stuff, then it can be iterative, right? But the idea is that your dissertation is a living document until you close it at the very end, which means that it's changing. So today your chapter one can be X, you submit it for feedback, we come back and say, hey, you know what, this is great, but you need to add this other section in here. Or, you know, this is really great, but I think this needs to move to your chapter two instead of your chapter one, which means that eventually you're going to end up going back and forth with your editor. Now, if your editor is easy to, is not easy, but if your editor is reasonably priced, they're well-versed and you have a good relationship, then that might be fine. If your editor is expensive, they're not familiar with Pepperdine policy procedure or EIP, um, it can create some tension. Um, in the last few years, we had a couple of students come back and say that the feedback that we're getting from other people about our process was wrong. Um, our approach was wrong. Um, and, you know, it's like, that's subjective. We have a model and a system that works. And the other pieces for our program anyway, um, people want to use our, our, our template and our structure and all that and our research questions. And, and it's like, okay but we coach you through every single aspect, as opposed to if you go and you take our material and you do it on your own, you may or may not end up with the right approach, right? Because part of what we're offering, it isn't just our templates, it isn't just our content, it's the coaching that comes with it. And so always be mindful, like Dr. Asia said, you never go against your chair, whoever your chair is, they're the, yep. because they're, 
Remember, your doctoral degree isn't awarded by the university. Your doctoral degree, wait, your doctoral degree is awarded by the university, but it's conferred by your committee. So if your dissertation doesn't align with what your committee is coaching you on or they're, they're facilitating for you, or it goes against their approach and methodology, or there's a conflict, it can really extend out your process. Not because people are vindictive, but because you're butting heads every step of the way. Mm -hmm. So to your point about to your point about editing, it, it's relational, right? And of course it's relational. Everything's relational. But it's about that that dynamic. If if it's a one and done, then it doesn't matter who the editor is as long as they're 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 good at what they do. And and Dr. Asia had a really good point. Um when I was an editor back back in the day, I guaranteed my work. I felt that confident. And I used to tell my students, if they're not willing to guarantee their work, don't use them. Because if they know APA, especially for Pepperdine students, because I had, I was prior to Carlos, I was Carlos prior to, you know, all of that. So I was clearing dissertation. So I felt really confident about my APA. Um, and you all see in my classes, I go through that manual with you because, you know, it is what it is. Um, so when you think about, the relationship you're establishing with your editor, you can have a long-term relationship like Ida has and that works if you have that set up. And as long as they know those limitations around your content, absolutely. But if you're gonna, if you don't have that relationship and you don't have that level of flexibility, then it makes sense to only do it at key milestones. And those key milestones are really like at prelim and at final. Yep, exactly. Thank you, thank you mm -hmm. so much. Yeah, and like she said, it, your relationship is going to be extremely important, and also the patience of the editor too. If the patient, if the editor is extremely patient, and they're like, you know what, no worries, I understand that you know things are going to change. I'll be with you throughout the process. Because I always tell my students too, I'm like, I'm with you throughout the process. So don't, you know, think that okay, this is it and it's a one done deal. Like anytime you need me, I'm here, right? Like I will even help you all the way through your review, all the way through your publication. Like I'll go all the way through because I've been through that process. I know how it is. So I feel confident and comfortable in helping the students with that and saying, okay, based on what your school is and how they're doing it. And then I know what they're doing. It's easy for me to know like, oh, okay, like USC has a different way of doing things. So then I follow what they're doing or UCLA has a different way of doing things. The Cal States have a different way of doing things. But as, if you know the process and your editor is comfortable and your editor is like, yeah, don't worry, I got you. And I'm with you through the process. I think having an editor like that, and it's very rare to find an editor like that, honestly, very, very rare. I haven't seen an editor like that. I feel like sometimes I'm the only one that offers that kind of thing. So I'm like, oh, I haven't seen anyone really offer. They're just like, yeah, we'll edit this and we'll give it to you in like three weeks and here you go. And then that's it. Like. So, yeah, just think about who the editors, who you want as an editor. And so if so, so some people I know even get like a coach if that if they feel I mean, for our EIP program, I don't think we need it. We have we have it here. But like, you know, like, for example, like someone like Ida, who's you know, you have a different chair and committee. So if you want to supplement it with a coach who can also help you and guide you, you know, that also works out. And then you can get an editor to come in and just like just only do the editing process of it. And that's it. So you have many, many choices is what I'm trying to say and how you can get that structured and done. Again, though, I would caution with the dissertation coach, find someone that's familiar with, um, you know, 
with things like that. Yeah. Agreed. Um, yeah. It, as long as, so I've seen, I've seen coaching work in both ways. I've seen coaching be very successful and then I've seen coaching be very detrimental. So it also depends on, on who the coach is, um, who your chair is, um, and, and what your topic is. Right. So it's all, and you should always vet the people within your, within your sphere, what, with who's helping you, um, thoroughly, obviously. Um, so getting back to the whole writing piece and getting back to the whole dissertation piece um does do any of you have any questions about the actual content as you're working through your preliminary chapters what about questions on the whole irb process because <laughs> i think that's something a lot of people get stuck on too yeah that's a different podcast altogether and every actually every university has a different approach to irb that's the other piece IRB is very specific to the institution. Well, let's talk about chapter three. Um, and I know for I know everybody has a different structure for the way they do chapter three, I suppose. But like, what is the general like way of doing chapter three or the general consensus of it? You know, we have methodologies of different types. And, you know, we have, qual obviously for us, we have qualitative phenomenological, but, you know, there's quant and all of that. What's expected to be written in chapter three um, for the most part? Because I think that's something a lot of people I notice get confused in. So your chapter three is actually your step, your, your step-by-step guide as to how you conducted your research. Someone should be able to take your chapter three and replicate your study. Mm -hmm. That's what should be in your chapter three. And and it's it, there's no cookie cutter um, because every methodology is different. So for example, with us, we have two different methodologies, right? We have the uh, Delphi method, and then we have the phenomenological method, um, which is leans more on the uh, qualitative uh, consensual research field than it does phenomenological but it's still in that space um but it's about your lived experience as opposed to the delphi method which is a mixed method mm -hmm. uh, and and while they're both for us in the ip they're both they both fall under the appreciative inquiry umbrella and that best practices model um how you approach them is very different because one is about the interviews one is about going out there and speaking to participants and the other one is more about um, the competencies associated in that space. So there's no way of like solidifying a, um, like a template for methodology, which is why we've created EIP. EIP is meant to serve leverage efficiencies. So the reason we can do what we do is because we do not cookie cutter it, but we do create efficiencies by having everybody do a very specific set of methodology procedures, if you will. But chapter three is hard to really nail down, especially because of the differences. So for those of us in EIP that do the PhD, we're doing the Delphi, right? Correct. I have a silly question. There's no silly questions. In the dissertation, we have the prelims and then we have the final. 
the yes. prelims, we are in this stage in which we will do something. And in yes. the uh, final dissertation, we have done this. Yes. But depending on the verb tense, I will have to rewrite everything. <laughs> what are your suggestions about that? That's funny you ask. Um, so Dr. Majidi and I argue about this every single year, which shouldn't be surprising to anybody. Um, he's of the belief that you can write it in past tense now. I did. I'm of the belief that you should write it in present tense and future tense and then go back and change it. All. And there's a reason for that. Um, in IRB, you can't, under any circumstances, write it as if you've already done it. So you're going to have to change it anyway. He usually wins out because, you know, he is he is Dr. Majid. Um, and it makes sense. It's, and so what, we, what we've done over the years is we actually have you write it in past tense like you did. But then for prelim, we have you in the app, I mean, for IRB. We have you in the application change all the language so that it's actually in future tense so that there's no questions and it doesn't get held up because we've had students that didn't make that change and in, inevitably it got bounced back and it's like you're not supposed to do any of this until after IRB and then you have to explain no it hasn't been done Dr. Majidi approved that we write it in the, pa in the past tense and and it just gets really complicated so that's kind of the the middle ground that we've that we've established. But yes, in a traditional dissertation, your preliminary chapter should be written as I will do. And then once you get to the end, you go back and you change everything to I did. And if you miss any <laughs> verb, if you miss any verb, APA clearance will catch it and we'll point it out. That was that was what I, I was gonna say, because um I did my first three chapters in uh, in the past tense first. I mean, most of it. And then before my prelim, I had to change everything. So I missed some of them. So as I go back and read every time, I catch some of them I'm like, oh my God, I'm happy that my community didn't catch those. <laughs> because a few times I had like the, the you know, the wrong uh, tense. And now I'm thinking, okay, later that I'm gonna do it for the final defense, I'm sure that I'm gonna miss some of them. I mean, me and my editor, we are both human beings, right? Your eyes sometimes just trick you or just, I don't know, jump around. So that is that makes it very challenging. I hope someday they come up with something to resolve that because it's really, I don't know if they can get uh, on the same page with IRB or anything, because that really makes it challenging. Imagine like more than a hundred pages, how many verbs we use, and then we have to change all of them. It is really tricky and challenging. Which is why, which is why Dr. Majidi is of the belief that sh you should be able to write it in the past tense. Then for we that should very push, reason. Then we should push Dr. Majidi to uh, bring IRB in, you know, on the same page with us. <laughs> So, yeah, that's not going to happen. IRB is federally um, mandated. So for them, it really is about making sure that we're not, I, you know, it's the protection of human subjects. I want to make sure that we're not reaching out or that we're not um, putting anyone at risk. And 
Now, most of the, the dissertations coming out of, you know, the education side of the house aren't going to put anyone at risk. They're all minimal right. to no risk, but we're not just the only school that does it, right? So there's the business school's doctoral program, there's a psychology side, and there's a lot of risk associated with mental health. Um, there's a lot of risk associated with business just because, you know, of money and things like that. So, so on the one hand, it would make it easier for our students. On the other, like that's that's really the trade-off of trying to make sure that we're protecting our human subjects when we think about IRB. But I, I, I hear you, Ida. I remember I was exactly in your shoes when I had to do mine and making sure, and I, I missed a couple of verbs too. It was like, cause you know, I had to go through it all over again, make sure that I didn't miss anything. And then when I got it back from clearance, it was fairly clean, except for I missed a few verbs and it was like, okay, fine. So I hear you. I'm beginning to feel very overwhelmed. <laughs> no, no, oh no. No, you know what it is? There's a lot of little things. Um, and that's really where we, we work with you. Um, so here's, here's, this isn't a plug for EIP, but this is really one of the benefits that EIP has. We work with you to make sure that, that you don't feel the burden as you go through the process. It's not easy. Writing a dissertation isn't easy. I don't care how much you enjoy writing because it's intense. There's a lot of content associated with it. There's a lot of research. This is why from day one, in my class, I pushed research on you all. I was like, you guys need to, this is the assignment, go do the research, make sure you're substantiating any, everything. Synthesize, don't you remember, if you remember leadership that very first term and you all were staring daggers at me at my, my syllabus. Um, there's, there's a reason for that. And, and the reason is once you get into this idea of research, once you start doing it, it becomes more manageable so that by the time you get to dissertation, if you've been doing research consistently, then it's just longer research. Um, so yes, there's nuances. There's little things here and there as far as your paper and, and, and some of the, the choices we've made, but there's also a lot of coaching. Like we're not a, we're, it, you have multiple people that you can reach out to. It's not just one person. It's not just Dr. Majidi, it's not just me, it's not just Dr. Brahmi, it's not just Dr. Wong, it's all of us co collectively, right? So if I'm not available, you can go to somebody else. If they give you feedback, I'm not gonna counterpoint it. Um, and so we serve as a unit that then walks you through some of these elements. Um, and I mean, students are graduating EDD students are coming back to EAP to do their dissertation for PhD. Um, so the system works. You, you just have to kind of trust that it will work, if that makes sense. Um, Charlotte, let me tell you this, maybe it gives you a little peace of mind. Um, I used to feel the same and I sometimes still do feel so overwhelmed, but doing your dissertation is really like one step at a time. 
now everything, all the information is coming. You feel like, oh my God, how, how am I supposed to do that? But, but no, little by little you go forward and then your chair and your, you know, your team, they're gonna help you. It's very good that you are with EIP. I didn't do that because I thought I might not be able to meet the deadlines because they're so structured. But I think that that is a very good choice. So uh, it's not like that. Imagine I had the goal for myself to have my prelims before the baby was born. And I had it scheduled five days before she was born. And I don't know how I pulled it off. I don't know. But I was like, I have to do this so that I can, you know, be done with this part and then focus a little bit on the baby and then come back to it for the uh, rest of, you know, my work. So uh, imagine how overwhelming that was. Uh, but uh, it's going to get easier when you are in it. Because I remember I was like, I cannot do this. This is not possible. I many, many times I, I was like, I'm going to quit. I cannot do this. It's going to take me two years. But it's not like that. You will you will get it done. When you are there, it gets really easier. And you are, I'm sure that you will be you will do much, much better than I did. So well, thank you. Yeah, it just all seems overwhelming <laughs> right now. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Just remember we're here. And and the template. So if you get stuck on the intro go write your purpose statement and remember you can change it and it's like a paragraph um you know if you get stuck on your your research questions draft them out send them over like let's soundboard them um if you get stuck on your purpose like and you decide tomorrow like i don't like that you can always change it so that's the other piece. This isn't set in stone. It doesn't mean that what you write today has to stay. Uh, yesterday, I met with a student and we talked about his dissertation. And he had so much going on. Like there was so much content in his head. And I'm like, just remember Kelly Bundy. I'm like, take stuff out so that you don't lose it while other stuff goes in. And you do that by writing it. And, you know, I know I'm dating myself and you all probably don't know the, well, some of you might know the reference, some of you might not. But anyway, take stuff out of your brain, put it on paper, even if it's a jumbled mess, so that you create more space in your brain to think of more jumbled messes. And write it down as a jumbled mess. It's okay, no one's going to see it. And then once you have a whole bunch of jumbled messes, you start making sense of everything you have. And you start making the connections. Um, I, in one of the other podcasts we've had, we talked about how we all write, or maybe it wasn't a podcast, I don't know, but how we, how we sit down and write, right? And I'm a messy writer. Like I start with a clean desk and by the time I'm done, it's like piles and paper and cups and you should see my desk right now. I won't show it because it's really bad, but like it's a jumbled mess. My jumbled messes eventually will make sense. But when I start writing, it's like, and I'm really good at wordsmithing, but not up front, right? So I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. This doesn't make sense. But if I put this with this, and if I bring this together, so find, find that space for yourself where you can create some of that mess and then start pulling the themes out. Like, don't strive for perfection. 
You strive for excellence. I stole that from Dr. Majidi, but that's the truth. We're not here to be perfect. We're here to strive for excellence. And that can be bits at a time. That can be, you know what? I've been sitting in front of this computer and I can't write. I'm going to go and I'm going to go off and I'm going to go have a piece of chocolate or I'm going to go have a donut and coffee or whatever it is that your vice is. I'm going to go cook a fancy meal because I know that that's what Suellen does. And, you know, like, you know, and then she takes pictures of it and it makes us all jealous. But whatever you do, <laughs> whatever you do, don't beat yourself up for it. We've all been there. Because that, that, doesn't, that doesn't help. That totally erodes your self-esteem and it erodes your self-confidence and it does all that nonsense. And then you start questioning whether you belong here. And, you know, then you call me and I have to talk you off the ledge. And then we have to have a whole conversation about where you belong. You are where you belong and all that stuff. And, you know, like, and I see you all laughing. So I know you all hear me, but we really end up in those spaces when in fact, all it takes is go to a different room, go outside, go, you know, go have some lemonade. <laughs> if it's pouring rain outside, go have a cup of coffee or some hot cocoa or whatever, whatever your comfort food is. Um, or not your comfort food, What go jog, you know, it's not all about food. Um, go, <laughs> go, you notice how I'm avoiding the alcohol because, you know, but hey, glass of wine or, you know, whatever. But don't beat yourself up over it. That's, that's, if, if there's any advice I have is that, do not beat yourself up over this. And call me. To our listeners, call me, you know, if you want to do that too. If you need dissertation coaching or you need to be talked off the ledge or you know i'm more than happy to do so call or email well email because we've had another podcast about how i feel about the phone so yes email me and then maybe we can set up a zoom meeting or something <laughs> but um on that note is there any other questions you have considering we're right at, at our mark here if this was a really great episode and so with that, thank you all for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's session, please remember to click the subscribe button. Have a wonderful weekend and we'll see you all next time.